perfect. What well, it is such a joy to be with you. This is, this is, I love this because we are branches of the same tree. Come on. So when you're engaging with a branch of the same tree, it's a different branch, so it's got its own flavor. We're all, most of us here, grafted into a very different tree than everybody else. But, uh, but so our branch has different elements and flavors than your branch, but it's the tree we're all connected to. And so it feels like family and home when that happens. So it's good to be here. I really appreciated Dean Briggs last night. Did you? That was, my goodness, I thought that was so helpful and clear. It made me sad that I didn't hear the first two. You did, so you're happy I'm sad. So that's how it works. The, I thought it was so helpful, so clear, and I thought the, if you're an intercessor in this room, the target that he gave us in exciting our holy imagination to lean into the possibilities of the grace of God for the church in the days ahead, I thought it was so helpful, so helpful. Thank you, Dean. That was really good. I sent him a text last night, but I just wanted to say it publicly. It's just so good. This morning, so I'm sure this is no surprise to this group, so I walk in. I'm going to talk about Psalm 2. That's my goal to this morning. But then I walk in and I sit down, and lo and behold, I'm not going to talk about Psalm 2. <laughs> no, I'm sure. With this crew, that's, oh yeah, that's just called breakfast. That's so not. <laughs> but uh, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about a, an, a critical element of generational transfer. I want to be really practical this morning. And so what I broke out, I sent it to the translators. They have the notes. I sent it to you, Sue. You have these notes. Really, what I'm doing, this is pretty unusual. I don't do this. These are notes that are internal. These are notes that we used this summer. So our little context. So I'm the president of the International House of Prayer University. And uh, this summer, a number of our international teams are launching language-based versions of our training, of our school. And so we already do what we do at IHOPU in Chinese. We're adding Korean. We're adding, we're adding Portuguese. Eventually, Spanish and Arabic is what we're aiming at. Italian. And, and so the challenge is for our Chinese and Korean friends in particular, if, don't take this too personally if you're here and you're Chinese and Korean. You probably won't take it personally. You'll probably go, no, you're right. But, but the challenge is when you say to a team of sincere Chinese intercessors, do what we do, they will do exactly what we do without variance. And, uh, and so what we've done this summer is we've taken our teams through the spirit of what we do. Okay, we want you to understand how we train so that you can take the mindset, the ethos, so that you can take the spirit of what we do and adapt as necessary to your context. And so we talked about our content curriculum. We talked about our values and lifestyle that we want to reproduce in our students and how we do it. We talked about our mentorship, discipleship model in terms of how we engage with students relationally. And then the one that I'm going to talk about this morning, we spent a session with all of our staff, all of our faculty, and we talked about the power of storytelling. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. I want to give you some keys. And again, there's probably a few of you, including Dean. I'll do to Dean what Dean did to me last night, there's probably a few of you that could do this session far better than I can in terms of, Dean is a, ironically, master storyteller. And so, 
where Dean was feeling last night like he was creeping into my lane. I'm this morning creeping into his lane. I took, the, I took it as an invitation. <laughs> but I do say that to say anything that you have at the end, I'd love for you to come up and share some insights because this really is your power alley of the many things that you do this well. But so as I do this, as I do this, naturally some critiques are going to emerge of the prophetic movement in general that you don't have to personalize. Really don't. They're general critiques. In other words, they're general observations of 25 plus years. I'm a, before I came to IHOP, I was part of a very old school Pentecostal ministry school. Very old school Pentecostal. Old school. I mean like old school. And if you know it, you only have to say old school three times and everyone that's part of it goes, yeah. So they're observations in a general sense that you don't have to personalize, but you can talk to the Lord about. Hey, do I do that? Is that a blind spot? I don't want to do that. One of the things I really do enjoy about this group is that I don't get the feeling that you're locked into your own opinion and way of doing things. There's a genuine openness to, hey, we want to learn. That's remarkable, really remarkable. As remarkable as dedication and faithfulness and intercession with a refusal to quit, that is remarkable in this hour in history. It's as remarkable to find that group also being open to learn. You don't find a lot of learners at age 40, 50, 60. You find a lot of folks that want to teach, not learn. And to me, that's a sign and a wonder in this generation because now we're in an hour where 40, 50, 60-year-olds not only do they not want to learn, they actually don't want to teach anymore. They just want to talk at. They don't want to talk to. And, and so I believe when it comes to actually seeing the next generation step into the fullness of what the Lord's ordained for them in the days ahead, I believe it takes that kind of spirit, both a dogged unwillingness to yield in the face of the storm that's hitting us, while at the same time having the openness and tenderness of a childlike heart to get whatever new the Lord wants to impart to help us equip the next generation effectively. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. I really do. I think it's really remarkable about you, and I think it's part of why I enjoy being with you. I just like that. I'll give you a sense of where I'm going the next two nights, just so you know. So tonight... And again, I've given Sue the notes if you'd like those. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about the New Jerusalem. The, uh, it's just such a critically important subject. <laughs> it's so important. It's so important. Again, I'm just realizing if I just say it three times, this room will agree with me. It's so important. Yes, I'm in. <laughs> you don't even need to explain. You said it three times. Then tomorrow night, I'm going to give a little preview of the book that, that I'm releasing in September, The Triumph of Beauty, God's Radiant Answer to the World's Growing Darkness. God's Radiant Answer to the World's Growing Darkness is the beautiful church at the end of the age. And, and so tomorrow night, we're going to talk about the beauty of the church at the end of the age and the strategic way in which the Lord is going to use beauty to capture the hardest of hearts. It's just so brilliant we look at the hardness and the increasing. It's not just hardness. It's like Marxist hardness. And you look at Marxist hardness and you go, that's a special kind of hardness. That's a borderline irrational kind of hardness. It is irrational. It's, they, uh, they are 
turning away from the truth, Romans 1, they're coming towards, if we're coming towards the apex of God's purposes on planet earth, then we're also coming to the apex of the Romans 1, turning away from truth in foolishness at historic levels. And so you can't, like, like what we're trained in, anybody in here that has any evangelical background, not just Pentecostal or Spirit-filled, if you have evangelical blood in your DNA, then you want to reason with people from the Word. And you're finding that's not working because there is no reasoning with insanity. They're not insane. There's this thing. I don't know if you know about it. It's called demons. And they have these demons. I don't know if you know about them, but they have doctrines and these... And then there's this thing attached with demons and doctrines that's called deception. And so we're coming in with our evangelical rationalism and we're wondering why it's not working. And the Lord goes, no, hey, I've got a way better way to get through to the irrational insane. It's called beauty. I'm going to make the church beautiful, says the Lord. And I'm going to set the beautiful church in the midst of a burning world, and we're going to see what happens after that. So that's tomorrow night, but, uh, but this, uh, this morning, I wanted to be very practical. So I am actually just going to take you through the notes I took our own team through. And so there's a little bit of IHOP in this. Just for this morning, you're part of our faculty and staff at the International House of Prayer University. This is the exact training I took them through. And I didn't have time to adapt it to you because I didn't know I was doing it until a few minutes ago. And I call this the power of our story. Why it's a critical element of our training. In terms of, I think it's one of the most critical. Wait, total side note. Where's Eliana? Eliana, are you back there? Will you stand up? This is not a prophetic word. This is not a prophetic word. But I just have an opinion, a real strong one. I think when you're 18, you need to come to IHOPU and help lead the school that your mom started. That's all I want to say. <laughs> Good. I'm not prophesying. I'm just opinionizing, but uh, I feel it strongly. No, I'm just sitting there, and I'm thinking, Eliana, your mom started this school, the, our worship school. Her, Ruth really did help start it, build it. She's one of the founding leaders that helped build our worship school. And to me, I'm thinking, how cool would it be if Eliana helped lead that thing? That would be sweet. So, power of storytelling versus the power of telling our story. I want to make sure that I'm differentiating. The power of storytelling is not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about the power of telling our story. There's, they're very different concepts. John Wimber said many times when he was leading the Vineyard Movement, he, just, he said many times in meetings, organizations grow through story. The Lord is doing something, and the more loyal we are to not tell our own story, but to tell the story of what the Lord is doing, the more that there's, a, there's so many just natural, again, that's the problem, there's just natural, psychological, emotional benefits there's a reason why businesses across the world utilize storytelling in their leadership model as it relates to motivating their teams. There's just a natural, there's a, there's a natural wisdom to this that isn't just, I don't want to say just biblical, but again, the world has figured it out. There's a power in storytelling in the general sense. And I'm not talking about that mostly, though I want to point at it and go, no, it, it is true. If you do these things, you will get these results. But that's not mostly why we want to tell the story. We have a very different end in mind. We're not trying to motivate 
productivity and sales, we're trying to get an 18-year-old to believe that they're in the center of what God's doing on the earth today and to stay with it when it gets hard. Ultimately, we want an 18-year-old that's going to be 28, that's going to be 38, that's going to be 48. We want an 18-year-old to get themselves in the middle of what God's doing, to throw themselves at it with all their heart and to not quit when it gets hard. Because it's romantic at 18, it's still romantic at 28. By about 33, there's bills attached to it and it's, the romance is gone. No, for real, as somebody that's been working with young adults at IHOP for 20 years now, by about 33, the attached bills and obligations and kids that are starting to, little kids, and then of course, in our movements, lots of little kids in succession that take over homes. It's like, my gosh, I didn't think it was possible to get to that part of the ceiling, but there you are. Suddenly, the romance of 18-year-old vision and 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 all of the awesomeness that you were going to be in God feels so far away in the mundane rigor of trying to get your family to, to stay with you as you engage in what the Lord's doing. It's hard. And then there is a part of, when you're 33, there's a part of a self-examination by which they say to themselves, wait, I gave you my 20s, Lord. I gave you my 20s in prayer, and I gave you my 20s in sacrifice. Or again, if they're a YWAM missionary, they're going, I gave you my 20s in the nations. Doesn't matter if you're in the, if you're in the marketplace, which, side note, for this, I was thinking when Christy said this, I was thinking, man, I tried. We have, a, we have four kids. We have a 23-year-old daughter. We have a, just got married last year. 22-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old son and a, an 11, about to be 12-year-old daughter. And our older three, man, we pushed them. They said, Riley, our oldest, you're going to go to conservatory, not IHOP. Lauren, you want to go to YWAM, the nations. You want to do orphans and all that stuff, not IHOP. And then I said to Daniel, we said, hey, let's do soccer scholarship and engineering degree, not IHOP. We pushed hard. And all three of our kids went, we heard the Lord. We're going to do IHOP you. It's okay. (laughs) So I thought, I tried, Christy. I tried. She's like, why were you having an argument with me in your head that I didn't ask for? That's accusation. That's what it is. So they they hit 33, and the romance is gone, and the obligations are real, and the return is small. What we don't do, this this is an aside, what we don't do as fathers and mothers is prepare our young people for how small it actually is. It's significant. It's powerful. It's filled with authority and it's filled with wonder and awe and beauty, but it's small. It's unavoidably small. It's rare to find a 33-year-old that's going to be unbelievably stunning. Most 33-year-olds, if you've met them, are unbelievably un- And so the, that's okay. The Lord revels in using unimpressive people to do impressive things. But we imagine at 23 that the next 10 years of our sacrifice equals being delivered from our unimpressiveness to graduate into impressiveness. And so when you arrive at 33 and you're still unimpressive and it seems harder than when you were 23 because you got stuff to lose now. It was easy to say yes to wholehearted radical abandonment to be lost in Jesus at 23 when he had no bills, no obligations, no responsibilities, no titles. Nobody knows your name. It's so easy to sign up for those things at 23. It's like, I'll go all the way. It cost you nothing. But uh, I I love your sincerity. I love it. 
But at 33, you're realizing, ah, to keep saying yes to what I, said, what I signed up for at 23, now it actually does cost me something. I could lose something that is actually germane to feeding that kid on that corner of the ceiling over there. Lord, are you still with me? There's those key moments where you have to re-engage. You know what? You have to re-engage the conversation that you started with the Lord 10 years earlier that feels so differently. That's why the Song of Solomon is such a beautiful book, yet another aside. Because the Song of Solomon at 33 feels wildly different than 23, feels wildly different at 43. Every time you go through the Song of Solomon, it's like, where was this book my whole life? Because, better than anyone, how radically the seasons change as you grow older in the Lord and how differently it feels from the fiery days of your youth. Fiery at 53 is so much more impressive than fiery at 23. It is. Fiery at 53 means you overcame pain to love. But how do you overcome pain? God, the grace of God, the excellence of his sovereign leadership in our life, but I want to suggest to you the way that we can equip one way, not the way, but one powerful way to equip the next generation to endure what the decades are going to throw at them as they sign up for stuff. And what they're signing up for, again, our journey looks one way. We're preparing them for a very different journey. Again, that's why I loved what Dean was sharing last night. Because, but what Dean was sharing last night has a very different cost than the cost for us of signing up for small and mundane and perseverance and stick with it and don't quit. That's what we all signed up for. I know it's going to be big someday. <laughs> I know there's going to be breakthroughs someday. And I love the little breakthroughs, but Lord, there's a big one, right? There's like big breakthroughs coming in the future. And, uh, and that's what we signed up for. What our young people are signing up for is how messy it gets on the planet when the big breakthroughs come. We want to cheer the big breakthroughs, but if we were more cognizant as fathers and mothers, we would also partially dread the big breakthroughs related to the counter hit that's coming to our young people when, not if, those big breakthroughs happen. Those big breakthroughs are really coming. They really are. The Lord says it 150 times throughout the Word of God. He says it very clearly. I do not do this for your name's sake. I do this for my name's sake. He has an agenda on planet Earth to vindicate his name in the minds, hearts, and mouths of every human being that's ever lived. Even the ones that have died with hatred in their heart towards him, he is going to vindicate his name to them in terms of who he really is. Who we think he is, there is a terminus point. There is a moment in which the human race can have their opinions of God, but there's this thing in the word called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the day in which human opinions about God are done. And now God's truth about himself is spread worldwide, and no one from that point forward gets to have an opinion about God that isn't factually true about God. That's the vindication of his name. He wants to vindicate his name. He wants us to know when we have, because it's association. When you hear somebody's name, you think their character. When somebody says Fred or Sue, you go, oh. Think about it. If I said their name to you, instantly their character would be the first thing you think of. You'd go, oh, I love them. And then you just start gushing because character and name 
reputation and name are all wrapped together. Of course, it's abundantly beyond that. In an ancient Hebrew context, the name, Exodus 33 and 34, the name is so critical. That's why it was so precious when God gave Moses his name. He says, I'll give you my name. When I give you my name, I'm attaching to your life the revelation of my character, the core essence of who I am and how I want to be known and understood. I'm giving you that as a profound gift of friendship. And so the Lord goes, I'm going to give that to the earth as my profound gift of friendship. I'm going to vindicate my name on a global level, but again, he's going to do it on a historic level because we know there's multiple resurrections. The end is not the end for anybody. Everybody gets resurrected. It's just a matter of whether you're resurrected into glory or into shame. But the glory of the resurrection of the saints is that the vindication of his name is the vindication of our lives and the way we lived it and the choices we made. Because now when his name is vindicated, everybody else, not just you, when you are vindicated before the nations, it's the moment in which the nations look at you and go, now the way you lived makes sense. He's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, somebody recognizes But the shame that others are raised in is, I never knew, or I didn't want to know, or I had an opportunity to know, but I was stuck in my own stubbornness. But actually, that moment, just another aside, that moment is terrible for another reason. It's just the way in which the capacity of humans and arrogance in that moment to be confronted with the vindication of who God is and double down on their own rightness. And do that eternally. Weeping and gnashing of teeth isn't necessarily regret. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is the doubling down of I will not yield to that God. Just our capacity to do that is terrifying. So in that vindication of his name, that this is where it's going, what Dean described so well is a glimpse into a necessary power shift. I love how he said it, related to regime change. Like, we are about regime change, correct? We're not about patting the wicked powers on the back and going, keep it up. We're going, you're done someday. It's one thing to say, Daniel 7, hey, you are unworthy of the throne that you currently occupy. You are unworthy of the power that you wield. My God is going to take that power from you and he's going to give it to the saints of the Most High. That's going to happen. It's one thing for us to say it amongst ourselves. It's another thing for what Dean described to become a global reality by which that statement hits differently for a world power or an economic power. And again, we don't have time for this, but I don't know if you're paying attention. The economic powers are getting really powerful. Like, it's, Lord, you're stacking the deck here. This is amazing. Like, and the Lord goes, no, I am stacking the deck. The economic powers are going to get, the more powerful they get, the more arrogant they get. History proves that. When pharaohs go from regional rulers to economic powers, they get so arrogant, they think they're me. And the economic powers, where this is going, I am just letting them get as arrogant as they want to get. If they refuse to repent, there's no end to the arrogance that comes with their wealth. And I'm going to let it happen And the church is going to, at some points, when we don't know the story, before we know the story, the church is going to be like, Lord, what are you doing? That seems unfair. The Lord goes, no, it's them getting all the money, military, power, government. They're going to get so many advantages. But 
you have me. <laughs> it's not even close. You have me. This isn't even this isn't even a thing. What they don't know yet is they think that the economic advantage, the military advantage, they think that the demonic advantages, Revelation chapter 13, they think the demonic advantages, they think that the spiritual demonic powers, they think that the political advantages, they think that's going to allow them to conquer the church and establish their utopian ideal. They think that, and that's okay. I'm going to show them through weak and broken folk what happens when you add weak and broken folk to me. I'm going to show them. And we go, wow, I love that. I love that. That's good news. Except it's not just a fairy tale. It's a real story that's really going to happen to someone. It's going to happen to your kids and grandkids. That story is going to happen to them. The Lord's going to pick, and that's when it becomes more real. If, you, if it's always something that may happen 100 years from now, you never actually prepare anybody for anything. But if you actually think, I suspect... My kids and grandkids are going to live a different story than I did. We lived the story of diligence to prepare the soil. They're going to live the story of, the, of its harvest. But when the soil harvests, the way that the Bible talks about the powers that be are going to take our message seriously in a way they currently do not. When they take it seriously, that's what our kids and grandkids got to live through. So when I say, hey, we need the power of telling our story as part of preparing them, I'm not just talking about rah-rah-ism. I'm not just talking about, you guys are awesome. You're the next generation. You're amazing. You're going to do it. <laughs> so let me tell you the story that you're actually in. It's a great story, but you got to know what's coming. You got to know what's coming. And so the power of telling our story, that's why it's not just the power of storytelling in the general sense. We're not just after a psychological benefit. We're not just after team camaraderie. We're not just after buy-in. We're after something far deeper that only grace can produce. We do our part to tell the story, and the Holy Spirit roots them into that story far beyond us in a way that can endure what's coming for them. That's what we're after. As fathers and mothers, we're recognizing, ah, the Lord is going to give you unprecedented power, and it's going to be far greater than their power that they thought was far greater than your power, and they're going to be shocked when they realize they don't have any power, and they're going to get real mad, and they're going to use whatever power they have to try to stop your power, but they can't stop your power because you're attached to God, and so when somebody's helpless, fight or flight, that's a very basic human instinct, they're not going to flee, and they're going to try to flee. Revelation 6, they try for a minute to flee, but ah, they can't flee because God's everywhere, and so then they're going to fight. Yeah, sorry, translators. You had no shot at that moment. Aren't you glad he had breakfast this morning? <laughs> We're not trying to pass on knowledge. We're not just trying to empower them to know and do. One of my observations in ministry culture is that we are really focused on what we are doing and what we're supposed to do and what we want to help them do. We're not trying to help them do what we're doing. We're, again, we're not being ministry leaders. We're being fathers and mothers. The power of telling our story is telling it as a father or a mother in the faith, not a ministry leader. We're not looking to hand young people our ministries. That's happening all across the body of Christ right now. Older leaders are looking for somebody young to hand their ministry to 
I want to suggest that those days may be almost done. It's not time for the young man to inherit the old man's ministry. It's time for the young man to step into their father's story. So the thing that we're after isn't what we do talking to them about the story of why we do what we do. We have to get understanding of a bigger story. There's the story of this family, but this fa- the thing I love about it, this family sees its story wrapped in a Moravian story. But the Moravian story is wrapped in a prayer movement story, and the prayer movement story is wrapped in an Ezra-Nehemiah story of rebuilding the prayer movement. It's thousands of years old, and it has an end that is bigger than the prophetic mission that we feel unctioned for today. The end of our actual story, the collective story of how our part fits with their part, the end of the collective story is the salvation of Israel and the return of Jesus. Jesus. 